This is the Elevate Student Ministry Podcast. Hi, I'm Pastor Dominic. Welcome to Elevate, the student ministry of Living Word Church, where we exist to exalt Christ, make disciples, and equip the saints. Thank you for sharing some of your time with us today. May it elevate Jesus and encourage you. Let's get started. And Colossians is actually a really healthy church. They've been taking care of each other. They have a love for Christ. They love the deeper things of God. They're actually in a, in a pretty good place of health. But there are these false teachings, these heresies, these unbiblical doctrines that are trying to push in the doors, that are trying to grab up followers. And we're going to look at those tonight and see how Paul deals with them. We touched on them just briefly over the past few weeks. We know that whatever this heresy is called, that it's called the philosophy, and that it promises wisdom and secret knowledge. It leans on some sort of worshiping of elemental spirits, which behind those elemental spirits are demons. It's been a really interesting study so far, but we're actually going to unpack what are some of those things that these heresies have been pushing, what have they been trying to convince believers into doing, and... How have they acted within the church? So turn your Bibles to Colossians chapter 2. And we're going to begin at verse 15. If you have a copy of God's word with us, with you tonight, it's going to be really easy for you to track. If you do not, you're going to have to bear with me because we're going to jump around a little bit. We're going to see some connections between verses and stuff that's really easy to see when you're looking at a physical Bible but bear with me. We're going to look at, number one, the heresies that are in the church that are trying to creep in. Number two, what is the, the end? What's going to happen at the end of these heresies? If people follow them, what's going to come of them? And then the third is, what is Paul's encouragement? What is he teaching believers to do in the face of these false doctrines? That's our three directions for tonight. And I want to open with a really interesting story that I just learned today that I think will help us kind of slide into our topic tonight. And it took place right before the turn into the Civil War. And it was a, a court case that moved through the court systems higher and higher and higher until it got actually into the Supreme Court. And it was actually a turning point. It was one of the big last straws that pushed the United States into the Civil War. And what it was is that <clears throat> there was a slave named Dred Scott, and he was... He was owned by one owner, but he was sold to another owner in Missouri. And this owner moved him to Wisconsin. Now, Wisconsin is a free state. And then after this owner was finished with his business there, Dred Scott had actually married uh, another woman, another slave. They had two daughters, and they moved them back to, Mich uh, back to uh, Missouri, a slave state. Unlearned, unable to read, totally illiterate, Dred Scott realizes that there is a law loophole. Now, according to the courts then, if he was moved to a free state, it set him free. And the doctrine was that once free, always free. So even though they moved back to a slave state, he should have retained the freedom that he should have had when they moved to Wisconsin. So he took it to the courts. And totally unlearned, pushes this into the case. 
and he wins a case, but then it gets appealed and he loses a case, and then it gets appealed and it's working its way up through the court systems, and soon all of America is watching this case. The abolitionists are cheering him on and trying to fund it, and all of the, the, those who are advocating for slavery are, are watching this, wondering what's going to happen, and it moves into the Supreme Court, and there at the Supreme Court, it was ruled that one that blacks had no rights as U.S. citizens, so the once free, always free didn't apply to him. Number two, slave states no longer had, uh, no longer needed to honor the once free, always free principle. And three, Congress shouldn't have prohibited slavery in Wisconsin in the first place, and Dred Scott lost. And he and his wife and his two daughters remained slaves. The Supreme Court, the highest power in the United States, corruption had moved in and was powerless for Dred Scott and his family's freedom. And as we're looking at our scripture tonight, what's beautiful is that Paul begins right off the bat with hope. Let's look at verse 15 together. Colossians 2, chapter, or chapter 2, verse 15. We're talking about Jesus. This is the Jesus who forgave us our sins at the cross, who took our debt, the record of our debt, and he nailed it to the cross. By his own blood, he purchased our freedom. This Jesus, verse 15, he disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame, triumphing over them in him. Triumphing over them. This is used one other place in the New Testament. And both times, it's painting the picture of a Roman general who is victorious in battle and he's come home. And Rome, they had like 230 victories throughout the, the Roman Empire. And 230 times, the, the winning general would come to Rome and before he got there, a herald would come running into the city, sometimes days in advance, and they would, they would burn incense throughout the streets. And the smell alone would let citizens know a parade was coming. Our boys won. And because their husbands survived and because Rome won again, they threw a huge party. The whole city stopped business. And they came to the streets and the parade was coming. Rome was victorious again. The enemies are defeated. And they would come in with trumpets and musicians. And they're burning more incense through the streets. And then last comes the general. And the general's chariot would be pulled by sometimes four white horses. Or sometimes, if it was in Africa, to show that they had victory, it would be pulled by elephants. Or if it was somewhere else, it'd be pulled by tigers or lions. And so here comes the general on his chariots. And led in chains behind the chariots were the kings and the generals and the commanders of the army who had lost. And they would lead them through town in shame at being defeated. Sometimes they were led through town to their execution. Sometimes they were led through town to be slaves in front of everyone forever. And this general would ride in his chariot in full glory. And the city would go nuts. They had won. And when we look at this and we're talking about Jesus, he has disarmed the rulers and authorities. Every force that has come against Christians, 
The enemy, the ancient liar from the beginning of time who tempted Adam and Eve, who has kept God's people in slavery, has been defeated. Every voice in the culture, in the pagan society that has been cast down, or casting Christians down, that has been persecuting them, they have been defeated. Death itself is led behind the chariot of a victorious king. He has triumphed over them, leading the procession. And you know who's in the chariot? It's not us. It's not our chariot. The chariot is a one-seater, and it is for Jesus Christ, the King of kings and the Lord of lords, the defeater of death and the ancient liar, and all those who stand against his people. And we come out to celebrate his victory. 2 Corinthians says that, that we are the, the incense, we're the sweet aroma of his victory. Maybe that picture makes more sense to you now. We sound the victory of a victorious king. He is triumphant. He has disarmed the rulers and authorities and he's put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. Therefore, therefore, since we have a triumphant king, since he has dominated and defeated all enemies, therefore, let no one pass judgment on you. Let them not pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink or with regard to a festival or a new moon or Sabbath. What are you talking about, Paul? These are the shadow of things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. Paul is now moving into the two heresies that are threatening the church. And the first one is this idea that Judaism never was completed. These Christian, quote-unquote, Christian Jews have come into the church and they're telling people that the only way that you can become a Christian, the only way that you can have life and life abundant and serve Jesus is to first become a Jew yourself. You have to follow all the dietary laws and eat the things they tell you to eat and not eat the things they tell you not to eat. And you have to follow all their festivals, which often would be at the turning of the month, which was the new moon. Circumcision was a part of this. But all of these things are just shadows. They're, they're signposts. They're arrows. They're pointing to something further, something else, something that is of substance. We talked last week about circumcision, that it was all about a sign looking towards a redeemer that would conquer the curse that has passed generationally. We are born sinners. Our parents were born sinners from their parents who were born sinners. This curse has been passed generationally, and yet the promise was to Eve that it would come through her seed, through a son of man, that it would be broken. And so, at Jesus Christ, when the Redeemer was born, when the Redeemer went to the cross to save us of our sins, the symbolism of these new moons and festivals, the symbolism of the dietary laws, the symbolism of circumcision had pointed to Jesus and he was here. It was fulfilled, it was done, it no longer needed to be carried out in the same way. It was symbolism, the arrows pointed at the city. If you're driving and you see a road sign that says, in 20 miles you're gonna come into the city of Homa, when you pass out the other side of the city of Homa, that road sign doesn't mean anything anymore. It's done, it's complete, you've arrived, you're there. Jesus 
is the substance that the shadows are pointing to. A shadow has no substance. You can't weigh it. You can't measure it in volume. It has no substance. But it symbolizes, it signifies that there is something there casting a shadow, and that is Jesus. He is the tangible image of an invisible God. And so they're being judged because they're not following these dietary laws. They're not following the Jewish things. Don't let them pass judgment on you for not following these things. And I'll tell you where the application meets home. Is that there's so many pressures around us that say you have to be to have salvation. You have to do these works. You have to have this transformation. You have to fix yourself. You have to have a self-reformation if you're going to please God. And it's totally backwards. It's entirely backwards. For hundreds of, hundreds of years, the Catholic Church pushed, you have to do these things. You have to say these prayers. You have to pay this money. You have to visit these shrines. What's amazing is that it seems like every human religion is surrounded and full of stuff to do, works to pull off. And that's what they're saying. People are judging them because they're not doing the works. People are judging them because they're not living up to these standards. And yet Ephesians 2, 8 through 9 is so clear. It says that we're saved by grace. Grace is that we don't earn it. We can't pull it off. Grace is a gift that we don't earn or deserve. We're saved by grace through our faith. We simply put our trust that he has done all the work necessary. And then it's out of a transformed life by our heart being renewed and our mind being transformed that we do act differently. We do put to death our old habits and sins. But he was the one that did the work at the cross. Let's keep going. Let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food or drink or regard to festival or new moon or Sabbath. These are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. Let no one disqualify you, insisting on asceticism. Asceticism, so hard for me to say, sorry. Asceticism and worship of angels going on in detail about visions. Let's pause right there. Let no one disqualify you. People, again, they're trying to say, you're not, you're not a very good Christian. You're not doing a good enough job. Why? You're not, what's that weird word that I have trouble pronouncing? Asceticism. I'll give you a good definition. This is the rigorous self-discipline and avoidance of all forms of indulgence and pleasure, typically as a way to express spiritual devotion. Asceticism says, I'm going to make myself suffer so that I am more holy, I'm more religious, I'm more spiritual. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to fast and give up food and water for long stretches of time. With, with this kind of religion, they would tell married couples not to have sex. Any sort of indulgence, any sort of pleasure, any sort, like you only eat nasty foods. Like whatever is good, whatever is enjoyable, you have to give that up if you want to be, be holy, if you want to be spiritual. They would say that you had to abuse yourself. You would hurt yourself to be more spiritual. These, are, these aren't ideas from Scripture. These aren't ideas from God's Word. 
These are very pagan. These are, this is a sign of a different religion that's trying to break its way in. The first one was this Judaism, Christianity Judaism. And the second one is the surrounding pagan religion. It was a mystery cult. And check this out. Let's keep reading about it. They insisted on asceticism and worshiping angels and going on in detail about visions. This, this mystery cult that was in the area was pushing this stuff. The worship of angels. Think about this. Anything that insists on worship aside from God is not from God. Paul says that behind every idol is a demon. And how, how does it anger God that we would worship the creation instead of the creator? This is Romans 1 in a nutshell. These demons are passing themselves off as angels and influencing trying to influence this church. And then you have right here that they're going on in detail about visions. They're trying to convince Christians not to follow God's word, but follow their own little spiritual visions that they had. They actually dug up a text. This word right here, going on in detail, is a word that translators didn't know what to do with. They didn't know how to translate it for a while. And then they dug up these texts outside of Ephesus. And they found this word repeated in these texts, these ancient manuscripts. And it was discussing these mystery cults in the area that whenever you were initiated, you would go into the inner temple. And inside the inner temple, people would have these spiritual visions, these weird spiritual encounters, almost like drug inducements. And what's happening here is these, these pagan influences and cultures insisted by demons are trying to influence the church and say, we want to lead these teachings and beliefs based on our visions instead of based on the word of God. So you have the, the Judaism that's trying to push its way back in, and you have these mystery cult religions that are trying to push their way in. Verse 18, let no one disqualify you insisting on asceticism in the worship of angels, going on in detail about visions and right here, I want to jump forward a little bit. We're going to come back, but I want to unpack these religions just a little bit more. Let's jump to verse 20. He says, with Christ you died to the elemental spirits, these demonic spirits. You died to everything of the world. Why? As if you are still alive in the world, do you submit to regulations? They'll say things like, do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. But they're referring to things that all perish after they're used. Do you want me to put this in plain English? What they're referring to is after you eat the stuff they tell you to eat, you just poop it out. It's of no use to your body. Referring to all the things that perish as they're used according to human precepts and teachings. So where does this stuff come from? This worship of angels, these weird visions, these teachings and doctrines, where are they coming from? They're coming from human precepts. Human teachings. It's all coming from imagination. Think about it. All of the Roman deities, the pantheon, the Greek gods, all of this stuff came from people's imaginations. This didn't come from scripture. This wasn't God's self-revelation to man. This stuff's all made up. These pagan religions, it's all made up. It's all surrounding idols and behind these idols influencing people and their imaginations and their weird visions are demons. Nothing has changed. People are insisting you have to do it our way or you're not very religious. You have to do it our way or you don't fit in. 
They're judging them. They're disqualifying them. But nothing's changed today, has it? Except instead of asceticism, instead of, you know, giving up enjoyable things, our culture is sort of the opposite. It's hedonism, which simply means just living a life pursuing pleasure. That's it. Look at our culture around us. It's get as much pleasure as you can. This is the meaning of life. Run, run, run. Have as much sex. Earn as much money. Have as much popularity. Live as cushy of a lifestyle. It's about pleasure. It's all hedonism. And what happens in our hedonistic culture is that Christians become the outcasts, the judged, the disqualified. It is social suicide at school to say that you serve Jesus, that you're a Christian. Isn't it? Even at Christian schools, at Christian schools, for you to actually live like a Christian, it's like socially unacceptable. How much more the surrounding culture? I've got a great friend, and he comes from the music industry. He was like top of the charts, music industry. And he once told me, he said, Dom, in Hollywood, in the music world, you can be anything you want to be. You can be gay or, or trans, whatever, or you can be a cat, or you can be Islamic. You can be whatever religion. You can be whatever you want to be. And they will cheer you on. But you cannot be a Christian. It is suicide for your career to declare yourself a Christian and to live like it. Why? Why is simply following Christ so quickly disqualified? Why are we called bigots, the people that love? Why? This is the culture that we live in. We're the ones judged and disqualified, accusing us of being the judgmental ones. It's so upside down and backwards. It's because there is a real and living God, and he has triumphed over evil, and evil itself is backlashing as hard as it can, and it wants to single you out. It wants to single out God's people, and it wants to convince you that you're not triumphant because your king is not marching down the streets with death and the enemy led behind in chains and open shame. It wants to convince you that you're the loser. But at the throne of Jesus Christ, every knee will bow. Every tongue will confess. The very people that point the finger at you, the very people that are trying to disqualify you and judge you, are the very people that will stand before God in all his glory with a recognition of their sin. He has led triumphantly everything that stands against him in open shame. If with Christ you died to the elemental spirits, why, as if you're still alive in the world, do you submit to regulations? All of this stuff is human precepts, human teachings. So what are the outcomes of these religions? What are the outcomes of these lies, these heresies, these false teachings coming from one side that says you've got to take on all these works if you're going to please God, if you're going to be saved, if you're going to live spiritually. And the other side is saying you've got to give up everything, even hurt yourself for the sake of all of this spirituality. 
What is the end? What's going to come of these things? Let's jump back to, to verse 18. Let no one disqualify you, insisting on asceticism and the worship of angels, going on in detail about visions. And what's the outcome? Puffed up without reason by his sensuous mind. This is the end. It's just pride. Pride without a reason to be prideful. You're, living, you, you're thinking to yourself, man, I'm doing all the things. I'm climbing the levels. I'm getting all the works. I'm looking in the mirror, and I'm better than I was yesterday. And I'm, I'm changing my, my lifestyle, and I'm looking good, and I'm wearing the T-shirt, and everyone thinks I'm really holy. And all this does, all it culminates in is you going, yes. You know what pride also does? It's because when you fail at moving up the levels, when you fail at changing yourself, when you fail at looking good, pride also says you're a loser. You can't get it together. You're inadequate. God can never love you. So pride makes you lose either by being arrogant, thinking that you climbed to the top of the pyramid, or pride accuses you of not being good enough and never succeeding. Pride is a lose-lose on both sides. So all the idea of a works religion, all that's going to get you is either pride that wins, but you're still losing, or pride that loses, and you're still losing. Let's jump to 23. What happens on the other side? Verse 23. What's another outcome of following these religions? These have indeed an appearance of wisdom, in promoting self-made religion. There's that works-based religion right there. Self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. No matter how hard you work, no matter how hard you try, no matter how many Hail Marys you say, no matter what T-shirt you wear, no matter how good you look, it values nothing and it doesn't actually deal with the flesh because your flesh is still hiding out in pride. Do these things and you can enjoy thinking great of yourself. You're spiritual now. Proverbs 8.13 says, to fear the Lord is to hate evil. If you're going to fear the Lord, you hate evil. If you're God's people, you hate evil. There's no way around it. What does God say? I hate pride and the arrogance, evil behavior and perverse speech. Proverbs 16, 18, pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. Jesus in Luke 14, 11 says, for everyone who exalts himself will be humbled and he who humbles himself will be exalted. Think about our culture to say, they say, we want our kids to have pride in themselves. Everyone has to win because we don't want to damage their little egos. Our culture is actually very into pride, and yet this is directly opposed to the teaching of Scripture because Scripture says the reality is you have nothing to be prideful about. You're dead in your sin. There's not one good person. No, not one. All have fallen short of the glory of God. No one seeks God. No, not one. This is the reality. But this is the reality that turns to a triumphant Savior that we couldn't win the battle for ourselves. All the demands of society, all the demands that are pushed on Christians that they say you can't fit in unless you're going to 
approve of every sin. All these philosophies demand behavior modification and works-based spirituality, but all they culminate in is the sin of pride and they add up to no value. So what does Paul include, encourage them to do? Let's go back to verse 19. Sorry, I'm jumping around on you, but I want a clear path of thought. So you have the religions, you have what they end up in, you have human philosophies, you have the end of those philosophies, which is pride and emptiness, and now we're going to look at Paul's encouragement to them. I got to go to a huge conference one time. And when I say huge, I really mean that it was huge. There was 70,000 people packed into the Astrodome in Georgia. 70,000 people. Whenever we sang at the same time, the walls of the dome would rumble. It was amazing. I've never been in that kind of situation. And trying to be like 11 or 12 years old with my dad in the middle of this chaos meant that people were shoulder to shoulder packed. We couldn't move around. You had to force your way through crowds all the time. And there was no way that I was going to be able to walk next to him in any capacity. It was just packed. There was just bodies. And at this point, I'm like, my nose is sort of like at his belt buckle, you know. I'm just a kid. And so my dad very wisely grabbed my hand and he put my finger through his belt loop. And he said, whatever you do, hang on. And he just starts plowing through the crowd. And I'm just drug like this, you know, through. And there was so many times that I couldn't see him. I just saw bodies with my elbow disappearing. But I knew that as long as I felt the belt loop, I was still hanging on to someone who knew where he was going, and I was still attached to my dad. That was it. Total focus. Hold on to the belt loop. Look what, look what Paul says. Let's start in verse 18. Let no one disqualify you. What are they like? Jump forward. They're puffed up without reason by a sensuous mind. And they're not holding fast to the head from whom the whole body, nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments, grows with a growth that is from God. When they're following this man-made culture, man-made beliefs, they're letting go of their anchor. They're letting go of their tether. They're letting go of the solid rock. They're letting go of the belt loop. And they're carried away and they're lost in the chaos of every other voice, of every other doctrine, of every other philosophy. Scripture says that we don't get tossed to and fro by every wind of doctrine. You know what? You're going to have things pushed in your school. You're going to have things pushed on you in college. There's always going to be these voices pushing on you. And you have to have something to hold on to. You have to have something to hold fast to. Because sometimes it's going to be hard to see. But you need to know that at the end, you're holding on to something stable. And what is Paul saying here? He's accusing them of not doing something, but he's teaching us to do something. He's saying, hold fast to the head from whom the whole body is nourished. And he's painting the church, not just living word church, the Christian church throughout the world as a body. He's reflecting Corinthians where he says that we are one body, many members, but we have one head, and that is Christ. And he just accused them of, of eating 
and taking on junk food that they just poop out. And what is he saying about Christ? He's saying he is the head, and from him, you're actually getting spiritual nourishment. It's not junk food. It's nutrients. It's energy. It's health. And it leads to growth. He is our spiritual head. What does the head do? It determines the direction of the body at all times. God is our king. He is our master. We fall in line with him. And we, being many members with many gifts, many minds, are unified by one spirit under one purpose, under one king, the triumphant king, and we hold on to him. Their firm foundation is Jesus Christ. He supplies all of our nourishment, all of our needs. I'd like to give you two different applications. Holding fast to Jesus in a crazy world, in a loud crowd, with many voices, many winds of philosophy. And I challenge you to know Jesus and to know Jesus. To know Jesus as in what Paul encourages them back in the beginning in Colossians 1 where he says that he's praying for them. He says in Colossians 1.9, he says, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. And then you jump forward and in verse 10 in the second half, it says that you're bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. So know Jesus. Study his word. That's where Paul turns them in the second half of chapter 1. He wants to defeat every heresy, and he simply does it by teaching them who Jesus is. And that puts to death every false doctrine. Know Jesus. Know him by his self-revelation. By his word, by his life, by his ministry, and by what he did at the cross. Know him. But take it to a new level where you don't just know him with your mind, with your thoughts. Know him in relationship. Have an awareness of him. Walk with him. Don't just know him, but know him. You could... Walk past a table and there's name cards. You can see a name card that you don't know. Or you could be sitting next to them and you spend the rest of the night talking to them. Don't just know about Jesus. Begin a life of prayer and study, talking with him. Think about a blind man on a bench. You can't have conversation with him until he knows you're there. We're the blind man, and God has identified himself. He's given us his word, and he's given us Jesus, who is the visible image of the invisible God. He's identified himself. Let us know he's there so that we, the blind men and women, can talk to him and have a relationship with him. Know him and know him. And so he encourages us, hold fast to the head and he's also encouraging us to hold fast to the body of Christ. What is the body of Christ? It's right here in this room. It's God's church. It's believers everywhere around the world, but those who are in our immediate vicinity. I talked to a young man very recently, and he confessed to me that he feels like he's the odd one out always. 
he feels like he's one of the only Christians in his class. And he's always weird. He's always different. Every day is just tension in his environment. The best encouragement that he could have is that every week, maybe it's Sunday morning, maybe it's Wednesday nights, maybe it's a small group, maybe it's a D group, an E group, maybe it's a personal Bible study with one other friend, but every week he gets to step into the body of Christ. And for once that week, he steps out of a culture that's in tension with him, that's disqualifying him, that's judging him, and he steps into a place of rest, a place where someone believes just like he does, where he can talk about how good his God is without any of the pressure. Because tomorrow morning, he has to step back in and be a light. And he has to not back down to the pressures of the world, to the pressures of sin, to the pressures of a very real enemy, all of which have been defeated, which he can hold in his heart. But he can hang on to the knowledge that there's going to be a time this week, there's going to be a time Sunday, there's going to be a time Wednesday that I can, I can finally be with other people just like me. And so the body of Christ functions on a lot of levels. It's where we get the teaching of God's word. That's where we're united in giving God glory. That's where we support one another physically. That's where we support one another spiritually. It's a team effort to pursue the kingdom of God. These are just a few of the purposes. Ultimately, we need each other. So hold fast to Christ. Hold fast to his body. Hebrews says, don't stop gathering with other believers. COVID has created a whole world of Christians that are stay-at-home Christians. We just do church at home. We just, we watch YouTube. We wear pajamas. But God is encouraging us. We need to be together. We have many gifts. We're united through one spirit. We need each other. Hold fast to Christ. Hold fast to his body. Dread Scott and his wife Harriet and their daughters remained slaves. They failed to win their freedom in the highest power in the United States. And there's a good ending to the story. In fact, their original owners, their kids, grew up to be abolitionists and purchased their family and set them free. And they were able to live the rest of their lives in freedom. But the highest power in the United States couldn't give them their freedom. Jesus has not left us slaves. He has triumphed over every authority which binds us. He has triumphed over every demonic force He's triumphed over the human heart. And where we cannot earn our salvation, where we cannot earn God's pleasure, did you know that before the beginning of time, God loved you? If you're a Christian in here, if you love Jesus, before the beginning of time, he loved you, which means if he is omniscient, if he already knows every day of your life, elevate, if he already knows every day of your life, Every good thing you're going to do, every sin you're going to commit, but he loved you since the beginning of time, and yet your days were written since before the foundations of the earth. Elevate, pay attention right now. That means he loved you knowing every sin. You can't let him down. He already loved you. And you can't earn his love because before you could do something good or do something bad, he already loved you. It was done. That's called grace and it's grace that we rest in that we don't have to earn it yes 
out of love for him, we serve him, and we do good works. He breaks every chain of addiction and bad habit off of us. But his love for us is as eternal as he is. The writer of Hebrews 10, verse 23. Let's turn and look at that together. This is where we'll close tonight. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 23. I love how this ties together everything we've been talking about. It's in the last chunk of your Bible. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 23. Our author here says, let us hold fast. Hey, there's that word again. Belt loop and a crown in the voices. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering for he, Jesus, who promised is faithful. The person on the other end of this belt loop is faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another. This is that body of Christ. Stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another. And all the more as you see the day drawing near. Recap. Man-made religions, traditions, and philosophies are empty, and they're spiritually useless. And all they do is create pride. The way to arm ourselves, the way to reorient when we get off course is to return to holding fast to Jesus Christ and holding fast to his church. So I've got two challenges for you. One, to think through what are some of the works that you've been convinced that you need to be saved, that you need that if you don't do these things, God's going to be mad and you might lose your salvation. What are some of the works that you've been convinced that you have to do? And begin to pray about those to surrender those to the Lord. And the second one is to pursue knowing him and to pursue knowing him. To be filled with the knowledge of God. Heavenly Father, I thank you so much. I thank you, Lord, that the highest power in the land that cannot set us free was triumphed over by you. That you and your omnipotence and your sovereignty have broken free the chains of slaves, and purchased us at the high price of your son's blood. Thank you for our freedom, that those who are free are free indeed, completely and totally to the end. Lord, I pray for anyone in here that does not know you, that has not made you their Lord and Savior, that you would replace a heart of stone with a heart of flesh, that you would set them free, that you would that you would bless them with the gift of faith to respond to you that is reaching out to them. Thank you, Lord, for what you're doing in our hearts tonight. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening, and a special thanks to all of you who have subscribed, shared episodes, and left reviews. If you would like to learn more about Elevate, you can visit us at iloveelevate.com and follow us on Facebook and Instagram. Thank you for everything you do that brings faith, hope, and love to the world around you. Now go, follow Jesus.